from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hey, it's Ross Helderman from The Post calling. How are you? Hey there, it's Sungman from The Post. Uh, This is Post Reports. I'm Alexis Diao, in for Martine Powers. It's Monday, March 8th. Today, what's in the COVID relief bill, the story of a Syrian spy, and the Meghan Markle interview that everyone's talking about. The weekend capped off a marathon 25-hour debate that ended with the Senate approving its version of the American Rescue Plan. No, Senator Bush has changed the vote. If not... The yeas are 50, the days are 49, the bill as amended is passed. This is the culmination of months and months of Democrats on Capitol Hill in particular pushing for more stimulus from Congress and really the first major pledge from the Biden administration to pass a major bill to fill some of the remaining holes in the economy expand the pandemic response and actually a whole host of other measures that are part of this sprawling $1.9 trillion package. This plan puts us on a path to beating the virus. This plan gives those families who are struggling the most the help and the breathing room they need to get through this moment. This plan gives small businesses in this country a fighting chance to survive. And one more thing, this plan is historic. My name is Rachel Siegel, and I'm an economic policy reporter at The Washington Post. Now, for those of us who are not business reporters, when we say $1.9 trillion, describe just how big this is. It's huge. And even business reporters also have to sort of sit back and remind ourselves that <laughs> it's an enormous number and that even just talking in trillions is is not only enormous, but actually quite a shift from the way that stimulus packages would have been sized during the Great Recession or other economic crises that we might use as a point of comparison. So break this package down for us. What are some of the most immediate needs that it addresses? So the package addresses a couple of cliffs that were coming up. So you might remember that there was a nearly $900 billion package that Congress passed in December. That package also had measures for unemployment benefits. It sent out stimulus checks. But there were concerns, particularly among Democrats, that when those provisions expired, that there was still going to be a great need. The $900 billion package that was passed in December covered unemployment benefits at $300 per week, and that is set to expire in mid-March. So this package essentially picks that up. It extends that $300 weekly benefit through September 6th, and it also provides a tax break on $10,000 in unemployment benefits. You might remember that the December package also sent out $600 direct stimulus payments, and this package adds on another $1,400 to it. Democrats had largely been pushing $2,000 checks. Those two checks in combination, they say, get to that promise. 
Some provisions that did not make it in have to do with the minimum wage. The House version of the bill that was passed last week pushed for raising the minimum wage to $15, but that did not have enough support among Democratic Mm -hmm. senators. And then there are other chunks that includes aid to state and local governments, school funding, obviously measures that help with coronavirus testing, contact tracing, you know, expanding the healthcare infrastructure to make sure that those vaccines can get in people's arms. Those are some of the major buckets that the Senate approved over the weekend. And tell me, was there anything in the bill that's not directly related to the pandemic? Obviously, there are so many Americans who in this moment are dealing with an acute crisis. And the scars of that crisis are not going to go away immediately, even with this bill. Unemployment benefits that are extended until the beginning of September go a long way. There are still some 9.5 million Americans whose jobs have not returned, and the number might actually be even more than that. But if we're thinking even more long term, Democrats were really pushing for provisions that sort of extended that umbrella even further. So, for example, the child tax credit was a major expansion that was included in the Senate bill. The Senate plan would make it so that for one year, most Americans would receive $3,000 for each child age 6 to 17 and $3,600 for each child under age six. Wow. So that's a very large expansion of the current child tax credit. And also there's been a push among Democrats who are saying the law that was approved by the Senate over the weekend would expand that tax credit for a year, but there's been a push to make sure that that will actually be made permanent once the year is up. There are also provisions for rental and mortgage assistance. There are block grants for childcare. And this is basically laying the groundwork for what Democrats are really pushing as a broader bill, not only to sort of plug holes as they come up or have stopgap measures to address cliffs that come with each new wave of stimulus that's being passed, but really make it so that Americans are able to fully recover from this even once the pandemic is over. Rachel, I want to talk a little bit more about the things that aren't included in the stimulus package, things that didn't make it from the House bill, like the minimum wage hike. Right. So the House bill did include the minimum wage increase from the current level of $7.25 to $15. But there were a lot of questions about whether or not that was going to be able to pass the Senate version. So in February, the Senate parliamentarian, sort of like the rulemaker of the Senate, basically said, you can't include minimum wage if you're going to go through this type of budget process. And it was unclear whether Democrats were going to ignore that overrule it, if the White House was going to support that decision. And so Bernadie Sanders brought this amendment as part of the discussions ahead of the Senate approving the bill. And it just didn't get as much support among Senate Democrats. That doesn't mean that the issue is entirely off the table, but it means that for the purposes of this immediate bill that got out the door, the minimum wage is one of the things that didn't make it in. We know that there are a lot of factions within the Democratic Party Are all Democrats happy with this stimulus package? Overall, Democrats are very happy with the stimulus package. It's a massive bill. It covers a lot of provisions that are seen to be quite progressive and perhaps some of the most progressive moves taken from the entire Democratic caucus. You know, I should make sure to say that there were some divisions with some of the nuts and bolts of this bill. For example, there were concerns about the makeup of money that's going to state and local governments. There was concern about the formula that is basically used to calculate how large a stimulus check people get. But that concern really stems from wanting to make sure that 
the bill is targeted to the areas of the economy or to households with the most immediate need. There was a big standoff on Friday over the unemployment benefit timeline that one of the most centrist Democrats, Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia, really held up over the course of this like nine hour debate. But overall, this bill looks, you know, somewhat similar to the original proposal that the Biden administration put out in January. And it's really seen as a huge victory lap, not only for the newly Democratic Senate, but for the Biden White Houses, too. And what about the price tag? I mean, we're talking almost two trillion dollars. Were all Democrats okay with that? Not exactly. So there were a lot of Democrats who were concerned about, you know, the size of that price tag. Again, concerned that there were certain buckets that were not immediately tied to COVID relief or could be tailored in a way that did meet the need a little bit more specifically. Republicans pretty much across the board said that this package is way too large. Senate has never spent $2 trillion in a more haphazard way or through a less rigorous process. It includes massive categories that do not have anything to do directly with the COVID response. They said that that was basically, you know, shoving a political agenda in a bill that was meant to be COVID-specific relief. Voters gave Senate Democrats the slimmest possible majority. Voters picked a president who promised unity and bipartisanship. Democrats' response is to ram through what they call quote, the most progressive domestic legislation in a generation on a razor-thin majority. And actually, Democrats who say that a $1.9 trillion package is not a price tag that they have to worry about, they actually point to Republicans who are supportive of the 2017 tax cuts, which are expected to add roughly $2 trillion to the national debt. You know, Democrats say that that's a reason for them to be skeptical of people on the other side who are concerned about, you know, the the toll on the national debt that this package could have. So, Rachel, how does the American public feel about this stimulus package? Is it popular? The package is actually quite popular. A Monmouth University poll taken late last month found that more than 60 percent of Americans support the American Rescue Plan. More than two-thirds also said that they would rather the relief package include $1,400 checks than see bipartisan support for the effort. So this is basically saying that they want more action from Congress, that they're more open to more government involvement in how the economy works and how Americans are helped by the economy, even if that comes at the expense of a bill like this that didn't get a single Republican vote and is seen as a real victory lap for the newly Democratic Senate and White House. And so where does it go from here? From here, the Senate version of the bill goes back to be approved in the House. From there, the House is able to pass it on to President Biden's desk for him to sign and formally enact. The big push from Democrats is to make sure that that whole process happens by the middle of March. That's when the unemployment benefits that were extended by the last stimulus package are set to expire. Rachel Siegel is an economics reporter for The Post. With respect to Syria, uh, what's happening in Syria is heartbreaking. 
and outrageous. And what you've seen is the international... In the summer of 2012, you have a war in Syria that's between rebels and the forces led by the president of Syria, Bashar al-Assad, that's in this stalemate. It's a quagmire. And you're starting to see some very dangerous, disturbing things happen, not just the killing of civilians and the dropping of barrel bombs, but the movement of chemical weapons as if they're getting ready for something. Joby Warwick covers national security and weapons proliferation for The Post. He has a new book out called Red Line, about America's mission to find and destroy serious chemical weapons supply. Uh, I don't see a scenario in which Assad stays and violence is reduced. And so you see Obama come out in the middle of 2012. The actions that he's now taking against his own people uh, is inexcusable. And the world can issue this series of very blunt warnings. Indeed, today we're taking another step. Uh, I've signed an executive order that authorizes new sanctions against the Syrian government. Syria, don't do this. Don't give away your weapons. Don't use your weapons. Chuck Todd. In one instance in August. Update us on your latest thinking on where you think things are in Syria. And in particular, whether you envision using U.S. military, if if simply for nothing else, the safekeeping of the chemical weapons. Obama is asked about this problem at a news conference. Uh, On Syria. Obviously, this is a... uh... And it's not a scripted moment. He's making essentially an off-the-cuff repetition of what he's been saying for weeks. But the point that you made about uh, chemical and biological weapons is critical. Uh, That's an issue that doesn't just concern Syria, it concerns our close allies in the region, including Israel. And he uses a fateful term. A red line for us is we start seeing a whole bunch of chemical weapons moving around or being utilized. The term red line. And that there would be enormous consequences if we start seeing movement on the chemical weapons front uh, or the use of chemical weapons. That would would change my calculations uh, significantly. So, all right. Thank you, everybody. In the weeks and months that followed the issuance of that statement, which later becomes so controversial, you see Syria starting to kind of roll back a little bit. They stopped doing the things that we were very concerned about. However, flash forward to December of 2012 and then early in 2013. This is a commercial satellite photo of a Syrian chemical weapons base. U.S. monitoring of roughly two dozen bases like this indicates the Assad regime has begun preparing its chemical weapons for use. Orders have been issued to bring together chemical ingredients... You see these small attacks by Syria as if they're trying to test the red line. A little chemical attack here with maybe just a couple of grenades worth of sarin or a single artillery shell, very few casualties. It was a moment of extreme frustration for the Obama administration because they can see these violations taking place. They can tell that this red line is being trampled on. As the president has said, any use or proliferation of chemical weapons by the Syrian regime would cross a red line for the United States. The Assad regime must know that the world is watching. And yet the attacks in the beginning are so small with so few casualties, you know, there's a big debate over what is the proper response. I mean, do you launch missiles into Syria because, you know, a single person has died in an attack? So President Obama holds off on getting involved militarily. But what was the public reaction at the time? Were they critical of him because of this? 
When these small attacks happen and people are waiting for the United States to weigh in, there's great frustration among the Syrian opposition. They're waiting for the United States to do something. This is clearly a violation of Obama's red line. So why aren't the Americans acting? And so you do see this pressure starting to ramp up. But it's not until August of 2013 when Syria essentially drops the big one. The images are gut-wrenching. Bodies sprawled across clinic floors, many of the victims' children, even infants. They launched this massive attack on the suburbs of Damascus, and hundreds and hundreds of people are killed at once. Then everyone can see that the red line has been violated in a most blatant way. This becomes a political problem for Obama. And even looking back now, people think of the red line as a great failure, that Obama threatened to use military force, He threatened to punish Syria, and in the end, that he didn't manage to do that. I think looking at the U.S. objective at the time, we certainly wanted to punish Syria for using chemical weapons. But our other big national security objective was eliminating the weapons themselves. So, Joey, you've been looking more and more into this because this is part of the basis of your new book. Tell me about your reporting process for this book. Because of my job and because I've been covering national security and and the Middle East for so long, I have conversations with people that understand these issues at a very deep level. And one thing I kept hearing again and again was, you know, our intelligence about serious chemical weapons was extremely good. The word exquisite was used a lot. So I began to ask about that. What do you mean it was exquisite? How good was it? And and how, how do we know so much? And that eventually led me to learning about this really incredible spy that the Americans had. Someone that has managed to stay below the radar screen all these years, even, you know, long after his death. But this one individual is very unusual, quirky scientist who was on the CIA payroll was this open door into this very difficult, very dangerous problem that the Americans were trying to break into or figure out, you know, as far back as the 1980s. Tell me about him. What do we know about him? So this informant was remarkable because he was a scientist, a weapons scientist. Not only that, he was one of the leaders of Syria's chemical weapons program. He was one of the scientists that was helping them develop things like sarin. And he also, one of his, you know, what was really unusual about him was he had once studied in the United States. He had gone to the United States as a young man on a scholarship. He loved America. And so when the CIA is is looking for someone to help them in the 1980s, this man emerges as a potential recruit. And just to give some background about how the CIA does its job, you know, a lot of the spying that we do is not so much Americans going to foreign countries to try to spy, although we do that. We often hire or try to recruit high-level informants, officials, military officers, other people in other countries to essentially betray their own country. That's, That's how we get our intelligence, is to talk other people into giving us information that we want and that we can't necessarily get on our own. How was he recruited? How did he become part of the U.S. intelligence? This scientist, this chemist, as we call him, wanted to reach out to the CIA. And this was a bit unusual. It doesn't happen every day where someone kind of raises their hand and says, I'm willing to help you out. But because he had this affinity for the United States, because he was presumably a little bit upset about the way things were going in his country, he sent a message in the late 80s through a friend. He was at a foreign conference overseas, and he sent a message to be delivered to the local U.S. embassy saying, I'm ready to talk to someone. So that message was received. It's relayed back to CIA headquarters. Some time passes. And then one day, as this man is teaching a class, which was his his second job, he was a professor, someone approaches him at the end of the class and says, hey, you reached out to us? 
And this person was a CIA officer who was starting to begin the relationship that became so very fruitful for the Americans over the next 14 years. And what was his role in the Syrian government? How high up was he? Syria built this elaborate complex of weapons research laboratories. The main one is located on a hill above Damascus. There are others around the country as well. And there are literally hundreds of scientists. Some of the best minds in the Syria's government are sort of dedicated to the task of trying to create weapons, including weapons of mass destruction for the Syrian government. This man was right in the center of this organization. It is known by its its French initials, SIRS, but it's essentially Secret Research Academy. And this man is one of its top scientists. He is a chemist who helps make sarin. He knows the formula because he helped make it himself. What is sarin? So sarin is one of the most dangerous categories of chemical weapons. It's called a nerve agent, and that means it attacks the nervous system, essentially stops your your nerves from being able to communicate with, with each other and with your brain, so all your systems start to shut down. And it's also very volatile, which means that if you release some of it in a room, it starts to become a fine aerosol, so it, it sort of travels across the room. And only just a, a small whiff, a single breath of sarin is usually enough to cause a fatal injury. So what was this chemist's relationship with sarin? This chemist's relation with sarin is really interesting. For one thing, he realizes that Syria is a relatively backward country. It doesn't have a big industrial base, so it's very hard for a country like Syria to make very good sarin. What happens with sarin when you make it, it very quickly starts to break down. So you have a problem. It doesn't last very long in your in your artillery shells. So he started to figure out a few workarounds. One was to create a binary sarin. And that means you have two ingredients that get mixed together at the last minute. Both ingredients are stable. It's kind of like peanut butter and jelly. You've got peanut butter, you've got jelly. You mix them together at the last minute and you've got your sandwich. And that's the kind of sarin that he began to make. It's the kind of thing that you can put in a bunker and it'll last for a very long time. Sarin has another problem is that it starts to, even after you you mix it, even in the initial minutes, it starts to break down. Parts of it turns into acid. And so we found this secret ingredient that was called hexamine, that if you add this to the recipe, it makes a much better product. That becomes important because no other country that we know of uses hexamine in their sarin formula. And so years later, when the Civil War breaks out, when sarin is used in places like the suburbs of Damascus and in other attacks around the country, there is a fingerprint. We know that this hexamine is part of their formula, and so we can find samples of this stuff and we can say, hey, this came from Syria's stockpile. Was it from somewhere else, from Russia or some other place? How much detail did the CIA gain over the years about the volume and the whereabouts of these sarin agents? Because of this spy's contributions, the CIA ends up with a very detailed, very precise picture of what the Syrians have. They know the kinds of chemicals they have. They know how much they've made. They know where it's distributed around the country. That's really important information in the 80s and in the 90s as we're at a time when we're worried about possibly aggressive behavior by Syria, possible um, you know, efforts to give this stuff away. And, but years later, when the Syrian civil war erupts, it becomes hugely important because we know just what Syria has and how dangerous it is to have this stuff lying around, bunkers scattered across the country. How long did the relationship between U.S. intelligence and the chemists last? This relationship continued over about 14 years, which is a remarkable period of time. 
Of course, the spy was paid for his job. Money was passed to him. He kept it in an offshore bank account. He began to live a fairly opulent life. Uh, One really odd thing about him is he had two wives, which are legally allowed to do in Syria, but wasn't very common among the professional class. So he's able to get separate houses for his two wives and travel abroad and have a a wonderful stereo collection and, and music. And because he's got all this money, he starts to draw attention to himself. And this becomes a problem. One reason he has money is not just because he's on the, on the CIA's payroll, but he's getting kickbacks from various vendors. And one day, the Syrian government gets the idea that this guy is, is perhaps being corrupt because he's living this luxurious lifestyle. We're hearing reports that he's getting money from various people. And so they bring him in for questioning. Interrogation takes place. The chemist gets a little bit spooked. He assumes that he's being brought in because somebody has discovered that he's spying for the CIA. And so in the middle of this interrogation, he blurbs out the big one. Uh, not that he's on, you know, on the take with someone, but he's actually giving secrets away to Syria's enemy, the United States. And this becomes very quickly the end of this man's career. He is put in prison. And then at the end, because he's a, a traitor, he is executed. He's shot by firing squad. So in the end, how important was the intelligence that the U.S. gathered from this chemist? The information that we gained during this period turns out to be extremely important as as things start to fall apart in Syria. One reason is, is just because we know what's there and we know how dangerous it is. But we also know where it's located. We know where these bunkers are, where, where this, this stuff is kept. And as, as the country starts to fall apart, and you're looking on a map every day, and you can see how the opposition is moving and how they're leapfrogging over territory, how they're threatening military bases, and not just the sort of the moderate opposition, but some of these new groups that started to appear, like Al Nusra Front, which is a, a branch of al-Qaeda, like ISIS, which starts to take over territory in 2013. That's when U.S. officials become extremely alarmed about where this conflict is potentially going, at least on that front. And the other thing where it becomes helpful later on is when a deal is ultimately struck, when Russia, the United States, and Syria, you know, agree that there's going to be this unilateral disarmament, that Syria is going to have to get rid of all of its weapons, we know what they have, and so we can kind of hold them to account. We were able to force the Syrians to get rid of about 1,300 tons of chemical weapons in the middle of a war. It happened as the fighting was going on. Joby Warwick covers national security and weapons proliferation for The Post. His new book is Red Line, the unraveling of Syria and America's race to destroy the most dangerous arsenal in the world. And now, one more thing. So last night, CBS aired an exclusive interview between Meghan and Harry and Oprah Winfrey in which they discuss life inside the royal family. So when I asked the question, why did you leave? The simplest answer is... Lack of support and lack of understanding. My name is Jennifer Hassan and I cover world news and social media for the Washington Post from London. I don't think anybody realised 
Just how damaging some of these revelations um, could potentially be for the royal family. I mean, in the sit down with Oprah, Meghan spoke about her mental health. I just didn't want to be alive anymore. And that was a very clear and real and frightening, constant thought. The royal couple spoke about how they had been completely cut off financially by the royal family, with Harry divulging the information that his father, Prince Charles, who is heir to Britain's throne, had stopped taking his telephone calls. I had uh, three conversations with my grandmother and two conversations with my father um, before he stopped taking my calls. The two also confirmed that members of the royal family had raised questions about the potential skin colour of their unborn child when Meghan was pregnant with Archie Harrison. So we have in tandem the conversation of he won't be given security, he's not going to be given a title, and also concerns and conversations about how dark his skin might be when he's born. So when I think about race and the royal family, when Meghan and Harry began dating and when they got engaged and when they were eventually married, I think a lot of people were just happy to see the royals embracing black culture. And that came across in the wedding in which the pastor delivered a sermon and they had a gospel choir perform at their wedding. And and that was a complete first for the royal family. And I think a lot of people really did think that it marked a turning point for what the royal family or a modern royal family should look like. But unfortunately, even though the wedding marked, you know, a turning point in history, the media reports and the way in which Meghan and Harry have been treated since they became the Duke and Duchess of Sussex, it's pretty evident that the royal family is still reckoning with issues of race. Now, when you look at more senior members of the royal family, in particular Prince Philip, who is 99, has struggled with some health issues in recent weeks and is married to the reigning monarch, Queen Elizabeth, um, he is widely known and has, has a bit of a reputation here in the UK for saying remarks which have often been condemned as racist over the decades. And before he stepped back from his public roles, he had made remarks about warning British students in China not to stay in the country too long or they'd end up with slitty eyes. And it's a huge deal, you know, whether you like the royals or not, to to speak out about what goes on behind those palace walls is, it's some would say incredibly brave and other people would say it's an incredible betrayal and that it just doesn't happen. So I definitely think that this is the most recent interview that echoes some of the things that Diana touched on back in the 90s and it kind of shows that not much has changed. Megan implied that there wasn't any support for her mental health when she was at her lowest point and and Diana said the same thing and they have both struggled throughout their time as wives in the in the royal family and I think if it does emerge that Charles Prince Charles was the one who made these comments about Archie's skin tone. What does that say for for the reigning king of England um, when he eventually ascends the throne? I think the way that people look at the monarchy after this interview will definitely change. Jennifer Hassan is a social media editor for The Post. Mm. 
That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. As we come to the one-year mark since the pandemic started, we've been asking you to tell us how you found joy this year, despite the challenges. This can be anything big or small. Daily walks, baking bread, eating bread, maybe a new hobby. What has kept you afloat? Tell us by recording yourself on your phone. Make sure to include your name, where you live, and what brings you joy. Email it to us at postreports at washpost.com. I'm Alexis Diao. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post.